We are continuing our 66-week sermon series. We're looking at each book of the Bible each Sunday. We have covered Genesis through Joshua. Today we're in the book of Judges. Next week we're in the book of Ruth. So if you're looking for a, a week to jump in with the reading, Ruth is only four chapters, so this is a good week to jump in with the reading if you've been looking for that, that opportunity. Um, we are focusing on the main point of the book, and we're talking about how that main point points to the bigger theme of God the King and God's kingdom. We are referring to this sermon series. The, the, the sermon series title is Your Kingdom Come, which is, of course, a reference to the Lord's Prayer. But the main theme of the book of Judges is this need for a king. God's people need a king. As we read throughout the Judges, it, it, there's spiritual deterioration. There's spiritual decline. And God's people are desperately in need of a righteous king who will lead them in righteousness. And uh, it's very nice. Chapter 2 gives us a nice summary of the book. It's, it's great when the book provides a short summary for you, and that's what we have. So I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 19. And this is the very inspired Word of God. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. <clears throat> they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways." Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your continued blessing on us as we read through Your book and as we study Your book, book by book. I pray that we would learn from the lesson today, that we would avoid the example that we see here in the Judges. And I pray that You'll use this time to equip us to live like You are the King so that we make You known as the great King that You are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are at this point in the storyline, if you've been following, where God made this promise to Abraham, significant promise, which basically, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And that promise included things like, I'm going to make you, give you many descendants, and I'm going to give you a land, and it's a specific land, and I'm going to be present with you, and I'm going to bless you. 
And, and so far in the storyline, all of these promises have been fulfilled. By the time you get to the end of Joshua, these promises have happened. And there's only one that remains fulfilled. There's one that's outstanding. And it's the promise that God's going to use Israel to be a blessing to the nations. So when you get to the book of Judges, if you've been reading along, you have this expectation, like this is it. This is the book where Israel becomes a blessing to the nations. But what you find instead, interestingly, by the time you get to the end of Judges, Israel is no different than the nations. And Tom Schreiner describes it like this. The book of Judges dashes any hopes that worldwide blessing would come anytime soon through Israel. And so we're going to begin by talking about our unfaithfulness or the unfaithfulness of God's people that we see in this book. Look at verse 10. It says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. This is a reference to Joshua's generation. A generation that had seen with their eyes what God did in giving them this land. And they were relatively faithful. And God blessed them and He was with them. But look at what verse 10 goes on to say. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. So it's a new day. It's a new era. It's a new generation and, and, and something has failed. You know, it's got the, the blame has to lie partly with the parents for not teaching this new generation. They failed to equip them. They failed to teach them, clearly. And, and part of the blame clearly lies with this new generation who didn't listen and didn't learn and, 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 didn't, and didn't remember what God had done. And so you have a generation that's completely forgotten their history. They've forgotten that God delivered them out of Egypt. They've forgotten that God gave them this land. They've forgotten the blessings. They've forgotten the commandments that come with the blessings. And, and as a result, look at what happens as a result. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that phrase eight times in this book. They did what was evil. Eight times. Twice we see the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in fact, that's how the book ends. It ends on that note. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you notice there in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says they abandoned the Lord. It was intentional. It was active. They actively abandoned the Lord. And in response, God sends them these 12 judges. And we'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But every time He sends a judge, there's sort of this brief moment, this brief hope. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is where they get back on track. And then the judge dies and they go back and they actually become worse than they were before. And it just happens. It's a cycle. The book of Judges covers several hundred years. Look at verse 19. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And I want you to notice how their faithful unfaithfulness is described in verse 17. It says, they did not listen to their judges for they hoard after other gods and bow down to them. The language that's used is they hoard, or the NIV says they prostituted themselves. It, it's, it's language that's describing marital unfaithfulness. And, and this image of marriage is a very powerful image that you see throughout the Bible. You have a marriage at the very beginning of the Bible. You have a marriage at the end of the Bible. And God gives us marriage, and the Bible talks a lot about marriage. And one of the main reasons why God gives us marriage is to be this picture of what His relationship is supposed to look like with His people. 
So when you see a good, healthy marriage, you say, that's a picture, that's a reflection of God's relationship with his people. He, he, he loves them like a husband loves his wife. He cares for her. And the expectation, of course, is that the, the, the wife, the bride, will, will reciprocate and be faithful to him. But the language that's used here in this book is, is they were unfaithful, merit, maritally unfaithful. And I think Samson is kind of the picture, the ultimate picture of this unfaithfulness. Samson is the final, the last judge. And in a sense, each judge just kind of progressively gets worse and worse. And Samson's sort of the final, last straw. And he's a picture. You read the story of Samson, he's a picture of what Israel has become. Listen to what one commentator said. I love this quote. This is a quote. We, we unpacked this this past Wednesday night at our pastor's Bible study. Uh, if you want to join us on Wednesday nights, you're welcome to do that, by the way. Listen to this relationship of, of Samson and how he is a picture of Israel. Samson represents his own people who had a supernatural origin, were set apart from among the nations with a distinctive vocation, broke their vows, and were enamored with foreign idols until finally they lost their identity and spiritual power and became the blind slaves of their oppressors in exile. Both Samson and Israel have divine origins. An angel appeared to Samson's mother and said, though you are barren, you're going to have a son and he's going to be an important, he's going to play an important role. And that same thing is what happened. God appears to Abraham. Your wife Sarah, though 90, though barren, is going to have a child. And I'm going to bless you. And, and you see that pattern repeated and you see it repeated in the New Testament with the angel appearing to Mary. You're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And so it's a, it's a divine origin and there's a divine vocation that comes with it. A distinct vocation. Uh, Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart for God's purposes. Exodus 19.6 Samson is set apart before his birth. He is to follow the Nazarite vows, which was unique to be set apart from birth to follow these vows and to not follow them temporarily, but to follow them throughout his life until his death. And of course, part of that vow included not cutting his hair. And of course, both Samson and Israel break their vows. And Samson allows his hair to be cut. And it happens really because of an inappropriate, unhealthy relationship with a woman. And it's these Philistine women that are Samson's downfall. They're They're his big downfall. He marries a, a Philistine woman, and that doesn't end well, and, he, and there's a prostitute involved in the story, and then there's another Philistine woman named Delilah, and that's just what the Bible tells us. You know, who knows what else is going on, but, but he goes after the wrong women, and he is a picture of Israel. Israel is going after the wrong gods. The, the Bible says Israel is whoring after uh, gods that are not Yahweh. And, and listen to how Dan Block describes these gods that Israel would have been enticed by. I think this is fascinating. The gods competing with Yahweh for the allegiance of His people are lusty, young, fertility gods who seduce the Israelites with the promises of prosperity and security. Furthermore, in contrast to the lofty theology and the austere morality of Yahwism, the Canaanite religious system offered exciting and often erotic cult rituals. And Israel went after them. And in the end, what happens? They both lose their identity. Samson loses his identity. Israel loses her identity. Therefore, they both lose their power. They lose their spiritual power. 
and, and they become enslaved, and they become blind slaves. And it's all because of this unfaithfulness. And it's described as a marital unfaithfulness. And I think one of the reasons why that, that language doesn't shock us and arrest our attention the way it's supposed to is because we live in a culture and we are therefore influenced by a culture that, that's, that has a progressively lower view of marriage. Over time, our culture has, be, has, gained, has, has developed a lower and lower view and regard and respect for marriage. And I think this is illustrated by the modern parable of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth who, who died recently. She became the Queen of England largely because her uncle abdicated the throne. And he abdicated the throne because he was committed to marrying a twice-divorced American woman. And that's a problem. In the 1930s, when you're the King of England, you're also, that means you're ahead of the Church of England. And if you're ahead of the Church of England, you can't be married to a twice-divorced American woman. That just wasn't allowed. It wasn't even a question. So he abdicated, and ultimately, Queen Elizabeth became the queen. Fast forward a few decades, Queen Elizabeth has four children, three of whom get divorced, including the oldest, Charles, who today is reigning as the king. He has been divorced, and he's been remarried to a divorced woman, and the woman that he's married to is a woman he had an affair with during his first marriage. And he's the king of England, and he's the head of the Church of England. He's the head of the Church of England. So what happened? What changed? It's less than 100 years. Who, who changed that rule? Right? That, that's just an illustration. It's just a parable. It's a modern parable of the revolution that's happened in our world, in our culture, in our Western world of people's views around marriage. And by the way, it's no coincidence that that's, that's directly connected to the whole LGBTQ plus revolution. If we can go in and tinker with the definition of marriage, then why not? Like, what, what, the sky's the limit. Might as well just keep tinkering with it until your heart's happy. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And so my point that I want to make here is that God views our faithfulness to Him in, in marital-type terms. And perhaps the reason why we don't get that or we're not as shocked by that when He talks about whoring after other gods is because our view of marriage perhaps has been, like the culture, kind of uh, minimized. And I just want to remind us this morning, there's no neutrality. You're either faithfully married to God, faithfully pursuing Him, faithfully loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you are wholeheartedly going after something else with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no neutrality. We love to think of ourselves as being neutral. Like, I'm okay with God, but I'm just not that into it. I'm not like a religious nut. And what we mean by that is, you know, I think, oftentimes, I'm just kind of neutral. But the imagery here of the Israelites, we've got to learn the lesson. I think we, we just failed to learn the lesson. We are either hot for Him in terms of we are on fire. We are pursuing Him, loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or we are not. We are abandoning Him. We are walking away from Him. So it's a good question. So it's a self-examination. Look in the mirror and say, am I being faithful in this marital type relationship? Am I going after Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is there something else that I'm going after? Second, 
Let's talk about our unfaithfulness and God's anger. Look at verse 14. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So by the way, the reason why I'm using the word anger, in case you say, well, that's kind of strong. Well, it's right there in the text. Verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And look at this powerful language. Look at how active he is. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So God is angry with Israel because of her unfaithfulness. And as a result, he hands her over to outsiders to plunder her. And it says in verse 15, just like he warned them, this is not new. This shouldn't be a new revelation. Oh, we didn't know this would happen. He warned, just like he warned Adam and Eve. You can eat from any tree. Don't eat from this one. In the day that you eat from it, you will die. It's a warning. And then they eat from it and then they die. He warned them, don't go after the other gods. Be faithful to me in the new land. Guess what? They go after the other gods and the consequences follow. And it's the consequences that it's the very consequences that he warned them about. I think it's a fascinating similarity between Adam and Israel. Israel is just repeating exactly what Adam did. Uh, listen to how uh, Tom Schreiner describes this relationship. Israel is, in a sense, given the same mandate as Adam. Just as Adam was to rule the garden for God's glory, so Israel was to rule the land of promise for His glory. Adam was to remove the serpent from the garden, and Israel was to remove the Canaanites, that is, the children of the serpent, from the land of promise. Both have the same role, responsibility, job, and they both fail. And they both experience the consequences of that failure, which is death. And so there's war, and God hands them over to their enemies, and He hands them over to each other. They have a civil war. By the time you get to the end of Judges, there's a civil war between Benjamin and the other tribes. And it says day one of that war, 22,000 were killed. Day two of that battle, 18,000 were killed. Day three, 25,000 were killed. Big numbers. Lots of life loss. And it's God's judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He said, Because this people have transgressed My covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Notice that phrase where he says, this people. That's an interesting word there. In the Hebrew, it's the word goy. And it's, it's a term that's usually describing foreign nations. You see, God is no longer saying, my people. He's no longer calling them mine. He's saying, this people. Why? It's almost like a foreign nation. Why? Because they're no different than the nations. In fact, in some ways, they're worse because they're, they're accountable. They know better. And there's no better illustration of this than Judges chapter 19. And by the way, heads up, this is a chapter that's hard to read. It's even harder to stand up before you and to recall. Right? It's just a picture of the depravity. There's a man who's traveling, and it's late at night, so he wants to stop in a town to rest. He decides he's not going to stop in a pagan town because he wants to stop in a town where there's biblical hospitality. So he says, I'm going to press on, and I'm going to stop in an Israelite town. I'm going to stop in Gibeah. 
and have rest and have hospitality. So he gets there and no one shows him hospitality. The only man who does is also passing through. So he goes into that man's house and that night it says that the men of the city, the Israelite city, the men of the city came knocking on the door and demanded for him to come outside to them so that they could know him. Chapter 19, verse 22. They want to know him. And it's the exact same language that's used to describe the events that happened in Genesis 19 with the city of Sodom. It's Sodom all over again. It's Sodom part two. But it's happening in God's city. It's happening in an Israelite city. And, uh, and we are supposed to make the connection. When you read Judges 19, you're supposed to go, wait a minute, this is Sodom. But yeah, that's how bad it's gotten. That's how, that's how much spiritual deterioration has happened. And then... It gets worse. They compound it. They take an awful situation and compound it. And the owner of the house says, let me offer you my daughter instead. That's not, that's not the right response. And, they, and, the, and the man offers his concubine instead. And it says in verse 25, they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And then he takes an awful situation and makes it even awfuler, if you can do that, he takes her and cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her out to 12 different tribes, to the 12 different tribes. And this creates civil war that I referred to earlier between Benjamin and the tribes. And there's so much, there's so much loss of life, the Benjamites no longer have wives. And that's a problem because they want to you know, continue the Benjamite tribe. So at the end of Judges, the Benjamites go out and kidnap young girls to take as their wives so they can continue the lineage. And it's, just hard, it's hard to read. And you get to the end and you say, you know, this is, this is Sodom part two. It's actually worse in a lot of ways. And, and you, 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 the expectation is, surely God's about to just take them out. Like this is it. The fire's about to come down, right? On this nation. Surely the fire's about to come down just like with Sodom. Sodom doesn't exist today. Right? Surely... So surely the fire is about to come. God's judgment is about to come. And, and he, it, that doesn't happen. And we're going to talk here a little bit about why it doesn't. But I want to point out for now, God is very angry with this people about this unfaithfulness. You know, at our house, whenever we talk about the subject of dating, dating, I always come back to this, this point. You know, I always say, think about this fact. Your wife, the person you're going to marry, or your husband, the person you're going to marry, depending on if I'm talking to my son or my daughter, uh, is out there right now. And that often kind of gets their attention. Like, whoa, in a while, it's kind of weird to think about. My wife is out there somewhere. And I'll say to them, how, think about how you would want other guys to treat her. How do you hope those other guys are talking to her? How do you hope those other guys are talking about her? How do you hope those other guys, what, what are the kinds of things you hope they're doing with her and not doing with her? And pretty quickly, you get a pretty quick image in your head of what you hope they're doing and not doing. And I will say to them, that, whatever your answer is to that question, that's how you need to be thinking about treating your people you're talking to. Whether it's uh, you know, other boys, other girls, you, you treat them the way you'd want someone to treat your spouse. Right? Because think, we all have this instinct in us, and it's a good, right instinct. We don't like the idea of somebody flirting with our spouse. Right? Think about that. Like, let yourself go there for just a moment. Some guy is flirting with your wife. How, what does that do for you? 
I hope it gets your blood boiling a little bit. Right? Think about the idea of somebody trying to be intimate with your spouse. It makes you angry, and I hope it does. And that's a good, godly, justified anger. Guess what? That's how God feels about us when we are unfaithful to Him. When we go after anything other than Him with everything we have, it, it, the reaction is anger. And rightly so, justifiably so. Why? We are His spouse. We are His bride. Why does it make Him angry? Let me point out two reasons why it makes Him angry. First of all, it makes Him angry because it makes Him appear to not be a very good king. We're basically saying He can't really satisfy us. We need something more. I need to pursue this. I want to do that. I want to be engaged in this activity. I want to do that. It, that's what will make me happy. What does that make Him seem like? A God who can't really satisfy and the whole point, the whole reason why God redeems in the first place is to demonstrate to the world that He's the King. So He redeems the people so that they'll live under His kingship. And in living under His kingship, they prove to the world, they demonstrate to the world, He's the great King. You want to come under His reign. And because He's such a great King, He takes care of us. He satisfies us. He's worthy. He's all we need. So every time we go after anything or anyone, including the flesh, including the self. Anytime we go after anything other than the one true and living God, He gets angry because we're not making Him appear to be the great King that He is. And the second reason why He gets angry is because He cares for us. And He knows it's not for our good when we go after other things. It, he knows it won't satisfy us. It's unsatisfying. It'll lead to your death if you pursue it with everything you have. You will die. And God cares so much for you that He actually gets angry. In the same way you get angry when you see your children making bonehead decisions. I care so much about you, it makes me angry. Because I want what's good for you. I want what's right for you. I want your life to lead toward life. And therefore, yes, I get angry when you make these decisions. God cares for us. He cares so much about us, He gets angry when we're unfaithful to Him. Because that means, by definition, we're going after something that's not really worthy and can't really satisfy. So this brings us to talk finally about our unfaithfulness and God's grace. Even in this book where we see human depravity at its worst, even in this book where we see God's judgment against His people and handing them over, we, we see the grace of God. And it's glorious. First of all, we see the grace of God in the fact that He provides these judges. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So we hear the term judge, and I think we have this mental image of a person wearing a black robe sitting behind a desk, hearing cases. And I think the picture we should get with the, the book here is more of like a military leader, kind of like a king, but not a king because it's more regional. These judges are more regional and not really national kings. And there's 12 of them, by the way, and I don't think that's an insignificant number, 12 tribes, 12 judges, um, the, notice the word save, verse 16. They were there to save the people. Look at verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So God pitied them. He was moved to pity when they groaned out in their oppression. They experienced oppression because of their unfaithfulness. And God gave them these judges. Now, oftentimes, the judges are sort of a reflection of the people of Israel. We talked about Samson. 
And, and the 12 judges, it almost seems to get worse and worse progressively. By the time you get to Samson, the wheels are off. And the one exception is Deborah. She's the most godly example of a judge that's given. And the other judges, there may be a characteristic here or there or an example of here's a positive thing to follow. But for the most part, these are not positive examples to follow. Let me give one example, Gideon. Uh, Gideon is told by God, I'm going to use you to save Israel. And Gideon says, okay, well, if that's true, I'm going to put this fleece out. And in the morning, I I want it to be wet and I want the ground around it to be dry. And God condescends and gives him what he asks for. And it happens. And you'd think he'd say, okay, I I realize now, but that's not enough. Gideon's like, okay, we got to do this one more time. I'm going to put the fleece out there tomorrow. If it's dry and the ground's wet, then I'll believe and trust that you're really calling me. And unbelievably, God condescends down and does it for him. But, but this is not in the Bible to tell us, you ought to do this, right? Like, you ought to go put your fleece out. This is an example to avoid. Like, don't do this. Just like when Gideon take, creates an object and it becomes an object of worship, it's not an example to follow. Listen, for example, to Judges chapter 8, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So it's a good reminder. When you're reading the stories in the Bible, you don't just assume this is a story in the Bible, therefore it must be an example I'm supposed to follow. Not always. In fact, when you're in the book of Judges, probably not. Right? And so just because there's a story in the Bible, you don't say, this is here, and therefore we're supposed to go emulate it. And that can be really challenging for people because they read a book like, they read Judges 19, and they go, this seems wrong. You're right. It doesn't just seem wrong. It is wrong. Avoid the example. It's there to give you an example to avoid. It's there to tell you this is how depraved they they became. So you say, well, how do I know? When I'm reading a story, and this person did this, or that person did that, How do I know if it's an example to follow or an example to avoid? The answer is, you use the rest of the Bible to determine that. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that says you ought to go put a fleece out and test God? No. (laughs) Right? So don't follow that example. Use the Scripture. And by the way, four of the judges are mentioned in Hebrews 11, including Samson. As an example of a man of faith. Wait a minute, what is this? Which parts of his life am I supposed to emulate? Probably just the part where it says at some point he had faith. At some point, Samson had faith. Be like Samson, have faith. But everything else, I don't think so. Don't follow that path. Right? So the, 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 the people are mentioned in Hebrews 11 because at some point they demonstrated some level or some element of faith. But the whole theme of the book is this, this theme, it, there's a phrase that recurs four times in the book. There was no king in Israel. There was no king. There were 12 judges, but there was no king. And what's implied in that is there was a desperate need for one. They needed a king. They needed a righteous king. And in fact, it's the very last verse of the whole book. Listen to the very last verse of the whole book. Usually you read the beginning and the end and you get a pretty good idea what's the book about. Listen to the last verse. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. And I just want to point out, we see the grace of God just in the fact that there's an Israel at all. There was no king in Israel. You mean there's still an Israel? 
There's not a Sodom. Why is there still an Israel? There was no king in Israel. That's also a foreshadowing. There was no king, but keep reading. Keep reading. There's going to be one. They're in need of a king. Kind of like another Moses. Kind of like another Joshua. The judges, not, not sufficient. And by the way, they're going to get a good king in the mold of Joshua and Moses named David. But even David's going to have some of the characteristics like some of the judges. Some of the same moral failings. And this is all pointing us to the fact that we are in need of a good, godly king who loves God's Word, who knows God's law, who lives by it, and who will lead his people out of rebellion and will lead his people according to God's Word. And the good news, we have that king. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who loves God's Word and knows God's Word. And when he's tempted in the wilderness... He doesn't follow the path of Adam. He doesn't follow the path of Israel. He withstands the temptation. And how does he withstand it? By God's Word. Because he knows God's Word. He's a righteous king. He knows God's Word. And therefore, he's the kind of king we need. And not only is he a righteous king who does God's Word, what he does for us is incredible. As the king, he willingly gets treated like Sodom. He takes the punishment that Sodom deserves when we're the ones who deserve it. You and I, like Israel, deserve the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the fire of God, the hell of God coming against us because of our sin. We deserve it. Jesus deserved none of it because He was a perfect righteous King who loved God's Word and always did God's Word, but He willingly took the wrath, took the punishment, took the blame, took the fire, took the brimstone so that we might not have to. And at the cross, it's incredible the way this works. The grace of God and the anger of God come together at the cross. See, is God really angry at sin? Well, look at the cross and tell me. Does the cross suggest that God is angry at sin? Yes. Look at what was required. Look at what was required to satisfy the wrath of God because of sin. It took the death of His one and only Son. Is God still angry about sin? Look at the cross. But look at the cross and see the grace of God. Look at the same cross, the same event, the same demonstration of His wrath, and also see the incredible love and the incredible grace. Because we were the ones who deserved it. Jesus is there taking it for us, so we don't have to. But God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't just stand up to the temptation. Through His death, He actually crushes the serpent. He doesn't just stand up to the serpent. He defeats the serpent. He crushes the serpent. He crushes death. And He defeats death through His death. Kind of a similarity with Samson. Samson defeats the enemy through his death. Jesus defeats the enemy through His death. Key difference. Samson remains dead. Jesus does not. And Jesus rose from the grave victoriously three days later. Today, He's alive. He is at the right hand of God right now, reigning over the cosmos as the King. And one day He'll return. And the message of Judges is the exact same message that we need today. Because of spiritual deterioration, God's people need a King. The good news is, God has provided that King. He's alive today. He's reigning as the King Make sure you know Him. Make sure you're trusting in Him. Make sure you're following Him 
as the great King that He is. Let's pray.